All right. Um, hey, Holly. Hi, Dave. How are you? I am great. How are you? I have been better. Uh, I was recording what I thought was a recording with uh, Glenn Sobel, but... Um, On the for- What Difference Does It Make podcast? Yes. Um, so we're, we're starting all over again. All right. So we have Glenn Sobel with us. You probably know him as the drummer for Alice Cooper. He um, also is the drummer for Hollywood Vampires featuring Alice, Joe Perry, and Johnny Depp. 2016, he's voted the best hard rock drummer in Drum Magazine. Um, if you know Shep Gordon, you may know he has a benefit New Year's show, and he's played with Steven Tyler, Michael McDonald, Sarah McLaughlin, and Weird Al, among many, many others. I mean, what, true. Now, what is that like being in a, in a house band? Because it's different style. I mean, I just mentioned four different artists that it's, are completely different. It's fun, but it's a lot of work. It's both. But I do that kind of thing often, not just at that event, but like at my residency in Hollywood, it's a club called Lucky Strike, which is a bowling alley. It's high end, nice, super cool bowling place, but it's also a club venue with a great stage and sound system. And every month we do a residency gig and we back up different guests. And so it's similar and it's learning songs and it's a fun gig. Who, for example, who have you backed up there? Uh, boy, we've had Nuno Betancourt from Extreme and Steve Vai and uh, Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine, uh, Orianti, we were talking about earlier. We've had She's a lot so cool. of cool guests. <laughs> so what's that like, though? I mean, if I mean, you have how much time to rehearse something like that? Usually, it, things like that, it's like a sound check rehearsal. You're rehearsing the day of or the day before sometimes if everything is set up at the venue the day before. But you're expected to show up knowing everything and i i read music thanks to being in middle school band and high school marching band orchestra etc all that reading music it all helped towards what i do now so i'm able to chart things out and the structure of the songs and the breaks and any important little transitional parts i can notate it and and that's that's what you got to do in situations like that you have to show up and then there's going to be changes that get made Maybe the, the front person, the singer, wants a different ending, and you have to notate it on the spot and be ready to, to make it happen. When did you start notating? Is this something you picked up when you first started playing in middle school, or is it... Uh... Well, I was learning to read, for sure, right. with, with taking lessons, starting in... Well, I was in eighth grade when I started, but I started playing drums in seventh grade at middle school, Hale Junior High, where I actually just went back to speak to the middle school students, which was great, but... First, I learned to read, which I always tell drummers how important that is. You don't want to be an illiterate drummer. You want to know what it is that you're playing. But then much later, when I was starting to actually play professional gigs, I would notice that drummers would do this. One of my mentors, Greg Bissonette, played with David Lee Roth in the 80s. Mm-hmm. That was his first big thing that really put him on the map. But he was playing a lot of different gigs. And I was his student. He's a mentor of mine. So when I was 18, 19, I was studying with him. And he showed me and his other students how he would chart out songs like a shorthand not writing out note for note but sort of charting out the structure a roadmap and eventually somewhere down the road i started doing that because it's like wait a minute you don't have to memorize everything Mm -hmm. you have it all on a music stand right there and the act of writing it out helps you internalize the song so it just it made sense to do that when you're in maui yeah you have to okay so they michael mcdonald will say we're going to play what you know yeah usually ahead of time we know what we're going to do but there's always a last minute one or two guests that get added but yeah with michael mcdonald it was great he usually joins us every year he lives in maui along with pat simmons from the doobie brothers so we end up playing some of that stuff like um 
long train running, which is without love, where would you be right now? People don't know the title of it as much, but (laughs) that one and what a fool believes and rocking down the highway. And then we did one of Michael's solo tunes. Keep, I keep forgetting, which is his biggest Mm -hmm. hit. And I just want to show up with everything charted out. And if there's changes, you make changes. You bring your pens and pencils and erasers. It's, it's very nerdy, but it's very necessary to be that kind of professional. Have you ever been thrown for a loop? As far as what? Somebody has thrown a song in and you weren't totally familiar with it. Or well, anything. if they're going to throw something in last minute, I would hope it would be something that we could get up to speed <laughs> on quickly. But yeah, it's not unlike someone like Steven Tyler to throw something in last minute, although he was not there for this event this last New Year's. But the last minute guest that we found out day of was Paul Simon. He's showing up at some of the parties in Maui around that time, but we got word day of that he is coming to the thing tonight and he wants to get up and do at least one song. So it was a song called Diamonds on the Soles of Her Shoes, which sounds like it was from the same record as You Can Call Me Al. It's Graceland. It is on Graceland. Yeah, Yeah. I figured it was. It's that same kind of Mm -hmm. uh, style and production. And so we just ran it at Soundcheck after listening to it. I made the quick cheat sheets. It's not a heavy arrangement, but still, we wanted to get it right. We had a percussionist, my buddy Andres Ferrero, who's the drummer in uh, Hamilton on Broadway. So he's a great drummer percussionist. He handled the congas and everything. And and it was great. We played down the song. We had uh, Willie Nelson's son, Lucas Nelson, who's doing great as a solo artist himself right now. Plays with Neil Young. Yeah, and he's one of the co-writers of many of the songs in a star is born mm-hmm. so he's a, a great music director and we were there to play it with him and paul simon and then willie joined us he wanted to do full band that was another last minute thing at first it was just going to be willie and his son acoustically and then we got word day before oh willie wants to do full band <laughs> so it was mamas don't let your babies grow up to be cowboys on the road again and good-hearted woman and had to go on youtube that night the night before yeah. make the cheat sheets but then they say yeah but you can't rely on that willie you just got to kind of listen to him for when the changes <laughs> happen i thought well i at least want to know what it was originally and then if there's a left or right turn he takes i can at least know how to transition and it was exactly what they said it's like listen watch listen to him you can't just chart it out. That's being the but drummer great- in one of those bands hosting and playing with all these guests. You got to be ready for real time changes that happen on the fly. Yeah. It keeps you on your toes. Totally. I yeah. And you got to be pretty confident. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is, that's, that's amazing. Do you have these moments where you have to step back and go, Oh, I mean, these are people that you probably grew up listening to a, a number of these people. Do you, do you have like, you take a second and go, okay, I got to learn, uh, <laughs> you know, sweet emotion. I'm, and and Steven's going to be singing this song. Let me let me just figure this out. Let me just have my moment, and then I'll get and then I'll be professional. Uh, it happened at first, way back. I mean, this okay. is this is the tenth year I'm going into playing with Alice and doing these type of events. But back in 2011, the first year I was doing it, yeah, sure, we did a special gig at the Whiskey uh, Special Alice Cooper gig where they put out some tickets on sale, but it was mostly an industry industry thing. And Robbie Krieger was going to join us for a couple of door songs. It's like, wait a minute. You mean Robbie Krieger is going to play door songs with us at the whiskey where the door <laughs> started. That's crazy. And then he walked into rehearsal. It's like, Oh my God, there he is. That's Robbie. But now it's kind of become very routine. People are musicians first. I mean, they're icons. Sure. But they make music and they make mistakes like anybody else does. And, they're just, they're normal like everyone else, and you got to treat it that way. But sure, the other part of you might think, this is nuts. Wow, look what's going on right now. But 
you got to be professional. Right. And the audience is forgiving too. I mean, if you're not note for note, I guess you just, well, it's not about note for note. Always. You want to go for that, but any little mistakes that may happen, the audience isn't going to notice. And part of being professional is covering it up. Yeah. Do you, do you yeah. get like sideway glances from, from, uh, leaders who like, I, I caught that. I know oh, that. the drummer gets blamed for everything, right. man. <laughs> <laughs> Even if something goes wrong, that has nothing to do with us. Everyone looks back at the drummer with this look on their face, like, save us, get us out of this. <laughs> and you do. You do your best. Yeah. I mean, it just, it happens. There's going to be mistakes and things that happen on stage, but one of the biggest aspects of being a professional is be, being able to recover from that mistake. And usually it's way worse in the moment. You feel this on stage, everything gets all slow motion if it's a bad train wreck moment. But if you happen to see a video of it later, usually the reaction is, oh, that wasn't so bad. Yeah. And most people don't notice. I mean, I've seen bands have horrible train wreck mistakes on stage and still most of the audience didn't know or the person next to me is going, what? What happened? And I'm saying, they just, oh my God, they they totally, (laughs) half of them went into the chorus, the other half kept going and most people aren't paying that close attention. So I'm cursed. (laughs) Well, okay. So did you learn this way back in, in high school? I mean, when, you know, just to keep going, because I, I know, you know, you have to learn it was all, it's all written out, but there's always, you're always going to mess up, especially in high school. I think you got to make mistakes. You learn from it, but I was in drumline. You were in drumline. That is so precise. And you've got any number of snare drummers could be three, five, seven snare drummers. If one guy makes a mistake or is sloppy, the whole thing is sloppy and it's so obvious. So I think being in high school marching band and orchestra, it really taught me that super hyper focus that I carried on to later life. And when you're the only drummer, there's some things that are easier about that. You're not playing with other drummers in a drum line. It's you and you have to establish the groove and the tempo and the count offs. And you, you just learn little tricks like using a metronome to start songs, maybe not keep it on the whole song, but I've got a little in-ear, like an earbud I put in just my right ear only, and I use my iPad and the, the metronome app, and I can at least start a song with that. And that guarantees that I'm on the right tempo because there's nothing worse than counting it off and immediate, immediately the singer looks back, too fast, too slow, and it just it blows the vibe. <laughs> I mean, they've count, singers will count it off, and then they'll go, it's too fast. It's like, well, you counted it off, but it's still your fault as the drummer. You just get that feeling audience uh, actually audiences are always the worst whenever you get the audience to clap they always start speeding up you gotta it's, it's it. always you <laughs> yeah. gotta really Some countries more than others they speed up really which yeah. country's the worst no, i don't want to okay. throw any country under the bus <laughs> at japan they get kind of fast <laughs> should a pretty different kind of appreciation yeah. oh. throwing them under the bus they're excited <laughs> exactly yeah. yeah when you got to do your own thing um you won this I was just looking on your Wikipedia page. You won this drum <laughs> competition at 19. Yeah, 19, 20, yeah. Was it? Okay, so you created your own drum solo. Or what, what, what was this about? I mean, what was happening here? at the- That was the Guitar Center Drum Off, which became huge. They, they don't do it anymore. I think they stopped it two or three years ago, but it became this like major event where kids, their goal in life was just to win that. It wasn't, I want to be a professional drummer and make music with people. It was, I want to win the Guitar Center Drum Off. I mean, it was important back then, mm-hmm. but they weren't like giving away cars yet or anything. Oh. They were eventually, but yeah, it was the Guitar Center Drum Off Finals, and it was the second year I'd done it, and I remember thinking, if I don't win this year, I don't care. I'm never doing this again, because it's the most high-pressure mm-hmm. gig situation. Play a drum solo first. Like It's not like you're playing a set of songs, and in the middle, there's a drum solo, and you're nice and warmed up on your drums. This is 
this other drum kit and you have five minutes to adjust it however you want the stands and the heights of cymbals and whatever and you have to perform this composition in a way where it's got a beginning middle and end and you got judges and the judges are celebrity judges there was like eric singer that's where i first had met him and there was uh there was peter chris and there was pat torpy who became a good friend and a lot of other guys chad smith i think was a judge at one of those and it's like wow this is just heavy do i want to do this mm-hmm. but yeah I, i'm glad that i did the second year i did it i won the thing and it, it led to my first endorsement uh, as far as a drumstick company goes, but it doesn't get you a gig. I always say when I'm teaching that nobody ever got a gig from playing a drum solo. <laughs> but it's got to be a prestige thing and, and something for your resume. Sure. It's got <laughs> prestige a- attached yeah. to it. Yeah. And I got to know people in the drum industry and it was good for a lot of things like that, but I knew that it wasn't going to be something that would convince people, oh, this is the guy we need for our band because he could play a crazy thing with double bass and polyrhythms, and that doesn't get you a gig. That that turns people off, in fact, sometimes. So is that what you were trying to do? Or for your first solo, were you trying to do it all? Like, oh, I can play these, poly, you know, like try and mix no, it up? Or what was, what was I, the I idea behind it? Yeah. I, I wasn't trying to show off a whole lot of uh, diverse playing. You, you have a style. You realize that you start doing certain things that are typical of you as a player i just i saw what the categories were because there's like quarterfinals and and semifinals for something like that and you hear what the categories are they're like timing showmanship groove originality i thought oh originality that's an important one Mm -hmm. because then i judged it at different times years after i had won and yeah those categories you got to think about that when you construct this drum solo that's got a limit of four or five minutes and you got to practice it. The worst thing that can happen is you're just getting warmed up and time's up. It can mm-hmm. fly by. So it was a high-pressure gig, for sure. So how soon after that, after you won that, was your first for, professional gig? Uh, I'd say just a couple of years, maybe maybe a year. Yeah, this about a year later, I was recommended by my mentor, Greg Bissonette, as a student, like I was saying. He recommended me to Tony McAlpine. Big time shredder. His first record was around 84. And it was I think it's credited as being one of the first true metal fusion records. Heavy metal and jazz fusion kind of put together. The drummer on that was Steve Smith from Journey, mm. who was a very accomplished jazz and fusion drummer. And I became a huge fan of his. I mean, I was listening to Journey before I was a drummer. Everybody loves Journey. But him as, as a jazz player was a very big influence on me. So he was on that record. I knew the record. Greg called me said, I gave your number and name to Tony McAlpine's manager. Do you know who that is? I said, yeah, I have that first record, man. It was Steve Smith and Billy Sheehan on bass. And Greg said, well, start learning the tunes, get on it. And I got the gig. And I was so happy to be able to tell that to Greg later that, yeah, I, that gig you recommended me for, I got it. And we're doing a record. So that was my first real thing. That's insane. That's so cool. Right. It's still one of my favorite oh. records I've ever yeah. done. The mix was good, and it was a, a very musician type record the musos like that kind of Mm. thing and so it's just the problem was by this time it was the 90s and that shred thing was dying off because grunge just erased the slate with not just hair metal but shred guitar as well so holly you enjoying yourself you having a good time with glenn this is so great i am so psyched great 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 we're going to take a break and we'll be right back
Welcome back. Let's get back to Glenn. What was your first band or what was there? I mean, you must have, especially in high school, it's yeah. like, I got I to gotta play with a band. I got to play with oh, some yeah. guys. Okay. Oh, I was in a band with my best friends and they're still my best friends to this day. It was called Bourbon Street mm-hmm. and we'd play backyard parties. Uh, from the West San Fernando Valley? Yeah. You called yourself Bourbon Street. Yeah. Because? <laughs> I don't even remember why. I think they got named before I joined it, but I'm technically the original <laughs> member because I'm on the first demo recording, whatever. That's that's how you count original members. Who's on the first record? There could be 15 people before it, right? But yeah, Bourbon Street, and we played backyard parties, originals and covers, and that was my first experience playing clubs. There was Gazaris on the Sunset Strip. <laughs> That was where we played for the first time. Mm. Met Bill Gazzari, the godfather of rock and roll. There were those commercials on uh, the radio stations back in the day. It was like a Sunday night. No one was there hardly, but we were excited to play a club on the Sunset Strip. Do you know what year this was? Yeah, that was 88. Okay, so yeah. Yeah. Air metal. Sure I was there. What's happening? (laughs) Yeah, uh, it was 88, and some band backed out, and somehow we got added in there. It was the first time I played on a mic'd up set of drums. That's a big moment for a drummer. Mm-hmm. It was sound check and the bass drum and the snare and the toms and the overhead mics and and that's like a very unbelievably godly feeling because if you just play in a living room and rehearse with all this carpet and guitars blasting, you know, the two guitars are in a, a volume war with each other as a drummer, you got to keep playing harder and harder. That's a good thing though. You learn to really rock a drum set and not be a wimpy player, but then playing when it's mic'd up, it's like, "Oh my god." Mm-hmm. there's nothing better than this right now <laughs> yeah that's that's where i thought oh yeah i got to do this a lot more this is it did you go see bands on the strip or sure. what, what, were, what were some first shows that you remember well we used to go see the band and remember we were under 21 so we couldn't get into a lot of places but there were places that were all ages or they were 18 and up we'd go to the country club a lot Reseda. Which, which was in Reseda. It wasn't Hollywood, but many of the Hollywood bands would play there. Mm-hmm. It was the San Fernando Valley's rock club, and it made sense to open a club there. They had a lot of people showing up, sold-out shows. We used to see Shark Island a lot, which a lot of people may not know. They, they did get a record deal on, I think it was Electra. I could be wrong. And they, they did put out a record. They had a single, got some airplay, but this was... Richard Zerny or Richard Black, Richard the Czar, this was the singer. And this is the guy that a lot of people, if they know Shark Island, they go, oh, yeah, that's the guy Axl Rose stole some of his stage moves from. Because we saw him doing the snake dance way before Guns N' Roses came out and he was doing that. But the cool thing was years later in 05, in a roundabout way, I ended up talking to Richard, the singer, on the phone and I ended up doing Shark Island's reunion record in 05. And it, for some reason, the drummer they had, he was not interested or not into doing it, but it was the other three original guys. And so for me and my best buddies in my band, this was like a special thing. I couldn't wait to, to tell them, guess, guess who I'm doing a record with, Shark Island. And, and it, was a, it was a fun experience. So we used to see them. We used to see Racer X. I remember that. Do you? Yeah. yeah. That was a band that, had a lot of players go on to do some very mm-hmm. big things, but they had a big following with the musician crowd. It was shredding guitars, but with a singer, mm-hmm. Jeff Martin, and uh, Paul Gilbert was on guitar, and the other guitarist was Bruce Bouillet. And those are actually two guys that I've ended up playing with in later years. Paul has a instructional DVD with some live band segments, and I'm playing on that with him, and that was a last-minute call. 
So again, it was me calling my buddies. Guess who I'm doing something? There was a lot of moments like that mm-hmm. of me calling my old buddies from high school saying, guess who I'm doing a record, a show with, you know, these guys that we used to listen to and idolize. A lot of that. That's like one of the funnest parts of, of the professional side is playing with people you grew up listening to. But Paul Gilbert was in Racer X and Bruce Bouillet. I did Bruce's last instrumental record from, I think it came out in 2014. And Scott Travis was the drummer, huge influence of mine. Went on to join Judas Priest in 1990. And he's become a, a good buddy. And it's just so cool that him and I sat down with a couple of drum sets one day a few years ago for like three hours. And <laughs> I was telling him like, oh, you don't understand, man. You're such a huge influence. And and he was this guy who's like self-taught. And he was asking me how to do some things. And it was kind of surreal, but cool. He's become a good buddy. And uh, he's such an innovator in, in metal double bass playing. And then the bass player from Racer X went on to play in Mars Volta. Oh, So it's a band that had a lot of people that went on to do stuff. We used to see them and... Oh man, bang, bang Tango, which I was in a band with the singer years later, Beautiful Creatures, with Joe Lestay, the singer. We were on Warner Brothers, and um, who else did we see? Kiss did a special show there, I remember, for Pirate Radio. We had to win tickets, and that was the place. That was a great, great club. Country club, yeah. Now I think it's a Korean church or something like that. Yeah, or it's a Hispanic church, yeah. yeah. Passed by it, it a lot. Such a bummer. You yeah. two played there before they broke and played at the sports arena in 1982. Yeah. Everybody played there at one time or another. Metallica right. started there. and Yeah. All right. So, I, as you mentioned, double bass, I, I heard a story. I don't know if this is true. That I mean, I, I've seen you play Hot for Teacher. Mm-hmm. And before the internet, you, you thought that Alex was actually doing like double bass work, uh, like with just two pedals, right? Or was it? Well, I never tried to figure out definitively what that was i just i heard it and thought it was cool and it was kind of obvious that it's multi-tracked and a lot of people argue over what that is i mean it doesn't matter everyone's gonna play it and do it their own way but i think what he was doing was simmons drums involved and then floor tom and maybe some bass drums some people thought no 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 it's a motorcycle engine man and then there's drums and who knows (laughs) you know i don't know alex i've never met the guy but he's another huge influence Mm -hmm. and it's a fun song to play Yes, but so you learned it, but just using your your feet. Yeah, right. right without a, any without any motorcycle or <laughs> or Simmons drums. No, this it's was hard th- to take a motorcycle to the gig. You know? Yeah, Rob Halford does it, but <laughs> yeah, um, yeah it, it's a rudiment called a herta. We didn't have a name for that rudiment back then. That now there's a name for that mm-hmm. rudiment, H E R T A, and that's what's going on and. There was a video, there is a video of me online on YouTube from playing that song at a drum festival in 2010. I had the little flip cam set up behind me mm. and it, it made the rounds. It, it got around a lot and it's been brought up just like you're bringing it up now. <laughs> no, but it's great. Yeah, it, it just, it's circulated and apparently Alex has seen it and uh, it's just great that that kind of thing happens. That's very cool. Go ahead. Can I ask you about Motley Crue? <laughs> I don't know those guys. What about? <laughs> well, well, Dave told me off mic that you had had uh, filled in. Yeah, a lot of it is just yeah. being at the right place. You seem to fill in like someone. You know, drummer goes down. There's Glenn Sobel steps right up to to the plate. Well, I'm not sabotaging anybody. Uh, well, right, exactly. But you, but I just mean being at the right place. Right. Alice Cooper. Well, you can set it. You tell me. Well, that was exactly what you're saying. It was it was being there at the time. We were doing. Motley Cruz, this is funny now. Their farewell tour. Yeah. They're all done. No <laughs> more. One? We will never <laughs> except, hear from Motley Crue yeah. again. Except now they're back. 
And um, no, but this was what was their farewell tour. 2015, we were on tour with them as the special guest. That's a little more than an opening act special guest. We did just about an hour long set, had full production. And we did that for a good while on and off with the guys. And I had already known Nikki Six from way back in 07. I did the very first 6 a.m. gig because that was a guitar player, DJ Ashba, who I used to play with. It's all about people calling you because they know that you're reliable. So in this case, Tommy Lee had a sudden flare-up of tendonitis. We were in Buffalo, New York, and I got a call in my hotel room from Crew's production manager. And I first met this guy years ago. He was a guitar tech that was, like, known. This guy was one of the best techs in the business, so it was no surprise that he became a big production manager for Motley Crue and Kiss. He calls me and says, Tommy Lee has got a problem, man. He can't play the show tonight. Can you fill in? And the first thing I said was, come on, who's messing with me? I thought He's if, punking. Yeah, if I, if I say, yeah, I'm, I'm down, let's do it. I thought I was going to hear a bunch of people in the background laugh and go, ah, I got you. <laughs> I mean, I really thought that's what was happening. And he assured me it was for real. I still wasn't 100% convinced when I was on the way to the venue. But um, I said, okay, have someone get a music stand with a light attached to it because it's a very dark stage. And have Adam, that was their sound guy, said, have Adam make a record, put a recording of one of the recent shows on a thumb drive so I could sit in a production office at the venue and chart out the show like I was talking about earlier, making cheat sheets, roadmaps, reading music comes in handy. People say, oh, but it's Motley Crue. You grew up on that. Yeah, but when there's bombs going off literally right next to the drums and mm-hmm. Nikki Six has a flamethrower bass on Shout at the Devil, and Vince <laughs> sometimes doesn't sing every word, and there's 15,000 people, you might get a little distracted. But I made cheat sheets of everything, whether I thought I knew it or not. And there's different arrangements when they were doing that tour to accommodate different pyro cues. Like on Primal Scream, there was an extra two bars of rest before the final chorus, just a giant explosion that, you know, if you don't have the in-ear monitors in, it would deafen you. I mean, we had pyro, but they made our pyro look like little firecrackers. <laughs> so I did that on seven hours notice. And sure, it was crazy because it's like, what what did I just get myself into? But I had done things like this in the past. There was Italy's biggest rock star, Vasco Rossi, who I had heard of always. But then I got called to sub that gig last minute. And this was in 2010. <laughs> And he's always had American drummers. That's why I'd heard of him. He's had Kenny Aronoff and Jonathan Moffat from Michael Jackson's band. And a friend of mine, Matt Logg, great drummer, played on a lot of hit records that you've heard. He was doing the gig, but he had an injury in 2010. And so I got called last minute because the producer that called me knew I read music and could chart things out. It wasn't about playing drum solos like I was saying earlier. That that wasn't going to do it, Mm -hmm. playing a drum solo. It was the skill set of reading music and adapting so I had done that way back and learned a 25-song set of songs sung in Italian. And then <laughs> days later, I'm in Sardinia, Cagliari, Sardinia, on the island, rehearsing with people I'd never met before. One American in the band, a guitar player, Steph Burns. and But it, it came off. Like, I was the, the wild card. They didn't know who else to call. Everyone else that had done the gig previously was not available. Mm. That's who they call first. So they called me and everyone was really nervous. And I walked in that room and I had it charted out and it was, it was fine. And I was nervous. Of course, the first show was 40,000 people. 
Was that your biggest audience at the time? Uh, I think at the time, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I pulled it off, and that's a good confidence booster. So when the Motley Crue thing came up, it's like, well, I have done this before, and this is Motley Crue. I do know the songs from growing up hearing them, being a fan, and then we've been on tour with them on and off for a while. So even being backstage, hearing the show in the background through the, the walls, certain things like pyro cues, they just kind of sink in by osmosis, you know? Mm. So that helped prepare for that gig, but it was such a whirlwind day. There was no time to really freak out or be nervous. I played the Alice set, and then a half hour later was the beginning of the Motley Crue set. And everything with what they do is on the in-ear monitors, and everyone gets the metronome or the click track. Not everybody knows what that is. But a lot of rock shows, when there's there's lighting that's automated and synced up to what the band is playing, mm-hmm. it's all time-coded. And so the band, or at least the drummer, has to play to this metronome, so it's all perfectly aligned. In this case with Motley Crue, musicians might find it interesting, the whole band would get the click track and the count-offs. And the reason I was able to figure that out way before is because they would just start a song without Tommy Lee counting it in. They were getting it in their (laughs) Mm -hmm. ears. The audience doesn't hear it, and I'd say, oh, okay. They're all getting the count-off. And nobody... told me this before I got up to play. I didn't rehearse with them. I didn't sound check with them. It was just do the show. But it helped that that metronome mm-hmm. is there because then the tempo is right on as long as you play with it. And this is a thing for drummers. Practice to the metronome every day. Yeah. It's part of professional life. But yeah, and I, I had to guess certain things like, well, is this a one-bar count-off or a two-bar count-off? If it's one, then I better be ready to go quick. Like on Anarchy in the UK, that's their Sex Pistols cover. I thought, I'll bet this is a one-bar count-off. And I guessed right. Nobody <laughs> was helping me. I thought, what these guys are so nonchalant about this whole thing. I don't think anybody thought about it. You they know, should they have. Don't, But they don't. But they, I mean, because it's, always, I mean, in, in the past, it's always been Tommy. Tommy's yeah. got this. Don't worry. Why would they need They've to discuss? They've had subs before for Tommy. Have they? Oh, yeah. Okay. It had been a while, but no, one of the uh, subs was. Yeah, who's the was, drum tech? Who was <laughs> someone? It, no, they would always call it other people. One of the subs was a good buddy of mine, Will Hunt, who's the drummer in Evanescence. Mm-hmm. But he had played in Tommy Lee's solo band way back. And he's done a lot of other cool gigs. He's been in Evanescence a good while. He played in Vince Neal's solo band, so he played Motley Crue songs a lot. He got called to do it years ago when Tommy messed his hand up somehow. And uh, I called Will. I said, okay, what'd they pay you? But uh, <laughs> no, they've had other guys. Morgan Rose from Seven Dust. Uh, for a while in the 90s, Samantha Maloney was actually touring with them, the drummer from from Hole. Yeah, so they just assume, drummers, drummers just know it intuitively, right? Yeah, that's a, you know, a lot of faith in everyone, drummers. Yeah, everywhere. <laughs> well, drummers always get short shrift, right? Well, you just, you, you got to be like, oh, I say just professional and be prepared. And it, it went really well that first night. There were no train wrecks. And I did five shows yeah. with him, a week's worth. And did you, you were, actually do go in his the roller coaster? Case? Yeah. Everybody asked that. I, <laughs> I wrote it during the daytime. I, I wasn't going to do that during the show. That would have been a weird thing. The sub drummer is riding the, roller coaster because that's tommy lee's personality Mm -hmm. he's so much more than a drummer i mean he's he's an important part of the sound of that band Mm -hmm. i don't think people realize or give him enough credit all of his tabloid antics overshadowed his musicianship but he's a very important part of their overall sound and when he would do his drum solo he's got the headset mic on and and he's talking to the crowd i love you what's up you know he's doing that whole thing and what would i do if i You know, what's up? I'm subbing for Tommy. You know, it's like, no, no, it's it, people were disappointed that they didn't get the full lineup at what they thought was their last time seeing 
the band, but I did ride it during the daytime. <laughs> I had subbed a couple few shows and I was talking to Tommy. I said, you know, Tommy, I just got, I got one question. Can I get a ride on the coaster? And he says, oh man, you got to try it. And so one day we arranged to get me down to the venue early and it's hard. Yeah. It's very hard. The hardest part is not being totally upside down. That's weird enough because everything feels far away from you for some reason. No, when you turn and you're at a 45 degree angle, the harness digs into your stomach and it knocks the wind out of you. You can't breathe, but you still got to be playing. And so I got to give it up to him doing that every night. And I know, I realize afterwards why they put Mick Mars's guitar solo right after the drum solo because Tommy is backstage with the oxygen tank. Wow which I eventually started using on tour. A lot of drummers and singers do this, oxygen tanks. I would think that would be really helpful, actually. Yeah, it's good to get a quick hit of fresh O2, especially if there's pyro, there could be smoke lingering in the air, which we've done a lot with Alice, so... Reminds me, I gotta renew. A, I gotta renew my doctor's prescription for the oxygen. You need yeah. a prescription. Man, we're having so much fun with Glenn, but we're going to have to stop it right here, and we will return next week. So until then, this is Dave. This is Holly. Check you later. Over and out. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.